Hey everybody, this is Nick Padiak. You're listening to I'll Be Damned. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, my guest today is Bob McNeese. He is an associate professor of uh, physics at Loyola University here in Chicago. I went to Bob's office on the Loyola campus, which is here in Rogers Park, just a, a few blocks away from my place, actually. And we had a, had a really good discussion, really far-ranging and fun discussion about uh, physics and, and various other things. Uh, so again, thanks for listening and thanks for subscribing. If you have not yet subscribed, uh, you can do so on iTunes or Stitcher or Google, Google Play or you know wherever you're listening to this, really. Um, please tell your friends about the show if you like it. I would appreciate that. And also, while you're here, go ahead and check out my other podcast. It's called Informer. Uh, it's a politics show that I do with a friend of mine who's a lawyer. We break down the laws that are in today's news and we give you what we call information without conclusion about those laws so that you can figure out what's going on really and you can know what those cable news talking heads are yammering on about when they talk about things like article two of the constitution or the emoluments clause or the logan act or anything like that we break those down tell you what that's actually about so that you can have the information you need to go forth and make your own decisions about things uh so you can go ahead and subscribe to that too uh wherever you're hearing this really uh, okay, thanks as always for the cover art to Alex Johnson and to Matt Pickett for the theme song. And uh, here it is. Enjoy my talk with Bob McNeese. So, first of all, is it McNeese or McNeese? McNeese. McNeese. Yeah. All right, cool. And I uh, read a little bit about your bio, uh, of your bio. So, you are from Tennessee originally? Yeah, I grew up in East Tennessee. East Tennessee. How was that? Uh, I really like it there. Yeah? Yeah, we're going down for Christmas in a few weeks. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. We still got family there? Yeah. Yeah, my mom and dad live there uh, in the house where I grew up. And my sister and her husband just moved there. They closed on a house like uh, three days ago right on wow so are you uh tenured here at loyola yeah i am okay so you're you're here you're here for a yeah, while you're is, not going to be going back to permanent tennessee. yeah i've no i've been i've been all over since leaving tennessee hmm. um but yeah we're here for good gotcha and where have you been well you know i, I grew up in tennessee uh, in east tennessee kind of in the foothills of the smokies in a town called oak ridge cool. which is uh, it was it was a secret city built during World War II as part of the Manhattan Project. Seriously? Yeah. You're making that up. No. Look, <laughs> look at all the books on my shelf over there. There's, no shit. Um, yeah. The, uh, the government built Oak Ridge during World War II at the same time they built Los Alamos. So really? They enriched all the uranium for the Hiroshima bomb at Oak Ridge, and they shipped it out to wow. Los Alamos where they put it together. Um, so it, just to say that there's national labs there now. It's like a big, it's a scientist town. So gotcha. a lot of scientists there. And that's, um, yeah, so I grew up there and then I went to college in North Carolina, then I moved to Scotland for a while. Right on. I came back to grad school in Texas. And then in my field, you do your PhD and then you do these short-term research positions called postdocs. Hmm. Uh, so I did a postdoc at Michigan, then one, uh, that's where I uh, started dating the woman who I eventually married. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I did one at Brown in Rhode Island. And then I moved to Canada um, and did one at a research institute there. And then I ended up here. Wow. You have been all over the place. When we got here, I was ready to be done. Yeah. I was ready to settle down. <laughs> and yeah. how do you like it here? Uh, I love it. Yeah? I love it. Yeah. So, um, you know, along the way there, my wife and I got married in Rhode Island when I was at Brown. Sure. And... uh we knew we knew we wanted to try to find a way to end up in Chicago, and it's kind of you know there's a lot of luck involved in my field because positions are hard to come by, and you just consider yourself lucky if you find something and sure. then finding one where you want to live is kind of a secondary concern for a lot of academics yeah. uh, so we were really lucky because we we both she had lived here for a while she did a master's at DePaul. And uh, when we were dating, I was in Ann Arbor for a while, and she was here, and I'd come back and forth on the train, so I'd spend a lot of time here, too. Mm -hmm. We both really liked it. 
Um, hmm. And so we were both eager to kind of see if we could find a way to come back here. So we got lucky. Yeah, right on. And it actually was kind of it was kind of lucky because I was visiting the University of Chicago. Uh, I came. I was invited to come give a seminar seminar and visit for like a week or two. And uh, I was, you know, getting to that stage where I was going to be applying for tenure track jobs. Uh, and I was just looking at the schools in the area. And I noticed that a friend of mine from grad school had just started as a professor here. Yeah. I'm like, well, I'm going to be in town. I should come up and visit him. Um, and I did. And I kind of realized that. So at, at Loyola, I spent about half my time teaching and about half my time doing research. Oh, cool. Um, and a lot of the jobs I've been looking at were kind of primarily research and mm-hmm. teaching is more of a secondary thing, but I really love teaching. Um, and it kind of got me thinking like, oh, you know, there are all sorts of jobs, you know, in physics and academia that are kind of a little different than the ones I'd been looking at um, that I'm really interested in. Uh, and so that kind of got me thinking about, what sorts of jobs I was applying for. And I realized that this was the kind of place that I thought maybe I'd like to be. And I ended up here. Now, what do you mean by that? Like, what about Loyola was it, that spoke to you? Besides the whole 50-50 split thing, what was it? Well, you know, it, in, in physics and subfields, it kind of, you know, uh, ebbs and flows. Sometimes there's a lot of activity and a lot of excitement and a lot of jobs. And other times, you know, you're producing a lot more PhDs than can realistically get jobs in a field. And, um I felt like in my field, we were producing a lot of PhDs, and I wasn't sure if that was kind of the best thing for me to do. Like if the PhDs that I was going to train were going to be competitive with PhDs coming out of you know Harvard or Princeton or, mm-hmm. or wherever. Um, but I really like teaching, and I really like working with undergrads, and Loyola is an undergrad-only department. So I oh, okay. kind of dawned on me that uh, – that I think what would be really satisfying was working with undergrads and teaching and kind of making sure that they got a really solid all around education in physics. And then for some of them, they would go on to grad school and, you know, try to do research in academia, but I'd also be training physics majors who do other things, doctors, lawyers, whatever. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I just kind of randomly realizing that a friend of mine from grad school is a professor here. And then I wandered up to the, I was on the far South side. I was down in Hyde park, right. Mm-hmm. Visiting university of Chicago. And, uh, you know, I just came up here and to visit with him and liked it and talked to people and applied the next year. Right on. And it seems to be kind of a perfect, uh, perfect storm for you. I mean, you wanted to be in Chicago. You, this is the, the position you wanted. So it, it's, it worked out it's well. funny because, so now one of my colleagues is a friend of mine from grad school and it's just, you know, academia throws you just kind of out there and you land somewhere, hopefully. Um, and so it's kind of weird that I ended up as a professor at a school with a friend of mine from grad school. It's yeah. just kind of very uncommon for two people to wind up at the same place. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we really landed here in right. the neighborhood. Like we got here, we lived near campus that first year and we kind of thought, well, we'll just look around the city, figure out where we want to live. And we'd only been here for a few months before we realized like we really like the neighborhood. Cool. So yeah, I like it too. So, so we moved in, we <laughs> yeah. found a place here and just stayed right on. So did you always know that you want, that this is the field you wanted to get into? Yeah. You know, I thought, it, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I was always really interested in it. I was, when I was a kid, I wanted to either do this or be an illustrator. Those, illustrator? Those like a, the, like yeah. a Disney illustrator kind of a thing? Or? Like, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to draw comics, but you know, um, those are just the two things I loved and I wasn't sure which one it was going to be. Wow. So w- at what point did those two paths diverge and you followed uh, the physics one? Probably, probably in college somewhere, wow. but, but, uh, but I still draw all over everything. <laughs> so you can ask my students or my wife or my colleagues. <laughs> if we're sitting around talking about something, I'm usually, it's like everything I can do to not be drawing on something right you now as we're talking. Feel free if you want. Uh, I might. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't be, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be upset. So what is it about physics that, that drew you in from, from such a young age? Um, no, I was just, I was always curious. Um, you know, the, the, the questions that I wondered about seemed like physics was the way to go about trying to understand them. Like, like um, what? what? You know, when I was, question? when I was a kid, I was, uh, just still, you know, I was really into astronomy. Um, and you know, that, that prompts some big questions like, why are we here? How does it happen? Where does it come from? Stuff like that. Um, 
And, you know, even when I was going to college, I thought that, that maybe that meant I was supposed to go into astronomy. And I don't, who knows, maybe I was. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I talked to people when I got there and the physicists I talked to, and actually this is true even before I got there, like physicists that I knew because a lot of my parents or a lot of my friends' parents were scientists. My hmm. my parents aren't, but a lot of my friends' parents were scientists. Because you grew up in that yeah, science town. Kept yeah. telling me, like, you know, what you want to be doing is physics. <laughs> um and I got the same thing when I went to college. And I was like, you know, that's, I think that probably is. Um, yeah, so, you know, I do, I, do, uh, I do physics. I do theoretical physics. I do stuff, um, uh, you know, I'm interested in gravitational physics. Like, I do a lot of black holes. Yeah. I study black holes. Yeah. Um, but I'm also interested in uh, cosmology. M- meaning what? The large-scale structure and origin of the universe. The kind uh-huh. of where does it all come from type questions the kind of thing that got you into it to begin with the whole why are we so you know i was i was interested in in it as a kid i was interested in 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 physics and astronomy and just science in general and where i grew up you know if you showed interest in that you got a lot of encouragement yeah just just in the community also my grandfather was a scientist too my my dad's dad who i was close to growing up gotcha uh, was a chemist who worked at the labs cool so i'm i'm fascinated um these are the, the the sorts of questions that you started off with that you're that you were interested in that kind of got you into physics are are the things that you are still interested in and yeah. things that you're studying yeah. and working on. Uh, I'm trying to not trying to not make this sound flippant or or even uh, uh, borderline insulting, but like, have you gotten anywhere? You know, <laughs> like, like with these questions, not, these are big questions. Not, you know, not very far. Um, <laughs> no, uh, a lot more is known than when I was a kid. Um, and uh, you know, professionally, I'm interested in some pretty esoteric aspects of some of these questions. But generally, <laughs> esoteric aspects of esoteric questions, <laughs> doubly esoteric. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, just in, in terms of the the field as a whole, it's it's really progressed since I was a kid. Um, especially especially cosmology. Hmm. Um, you know, when I, when I was a kid, um, cosmology was something that some people studied, but it was not kind of treated the same way as as you know fields within physics that had like a more solid experimental physics is an experimental science and Mm. um the experimental foundation for studying the universe as a whole was on shaky ground and i read a lot of popular stuff as a kid and i didn't appreciate that i just thought it was cool but um if you look at kind of where the field is now compared to 20 years ago it's a dramatic change compared to 40 years ago. It's night and day. In, in what way? How, um, how has it evolved? So, you know, 40, 40 years ago, uh, it's just experimentally, it was a crude field, um, you know, in the early stages. And, um, you know, a lot of physicists weren't quite sure how seriously to take some of the results. And, you know, probably around 20 years ago, it just entered a, a new stage where I had critical mass, like enough people were doing it and interested and, you know, thinking about it, that people started figuring out clever experimental ways of studying things. And all of a sudden there was kind of rich, real data, experimental data that maybe hadn't been there before. And it just kind of snowballed. And it's, we're, we're living through a golden age of cosmology right hmm. now. And, 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 and gravitational physics to in, the other stuff I'm interested in. In what way? Like what, why is now a golden age? What's happening now? Um, just because we have kind of a diversity of ways of, of studying the universe, uh, kind of precision studying the universe that, that we didn't have before. So you can collect uh, you know, uh, data to kind of fill out uh, you know, really complex narratives about how the universe evolved. Um, you know, and you can you can do so with precision. Um, so you can you know, build models of cosmological evolution based on um, you know, really detailed observations of, of things that, that, that you couldn't do before. And, and you can take, um, you know, other kind of big studies, things like, you know, the way galaxies are distributed throughout the universe, but also, um, you know, the, the detailed properties of the kind of leftover radiation from the Big Bang, the cosmic microwave background. And you can kind of do all these different types of studies that, that tell you slightly different things about the universe and then put them all together and develop this really rich kind of description of, of what we know about the universe that you, you just didn't have all that information 
you know, 40 years ago and there weren't enough people doing it, you know, it, it just, it took a while. Like it took a while for it to, you know, percolate and people get interested and then become a mature field. And so kind of what we're living through right now is it, it has become a mature field hmm. and people are doing, you know, things that experimentally no one had any idea. They didn't even know what the questions were 40 years ago, but, you know, even beyond that, like didn't have the kind of experimental techniques or tools yeah. needed yeah. to do this kind of stuff. That that whole thing, it's just endlessly fascinating to me. It's one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk with you. I mean, the only reason that I really know you is I, I follow you on Twitter. Uh, I just kind of found you there, and it's like, oh, right on. There's a physicist in the neighborhood, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, it's something that I uh, think about and ponder a lot, and my wife just can't. She, It's like it breaks her brain. It's too much, you know, to think about how big the universe <laughs> is and, and all of that. And it's just... My, it's 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 overwhelming. My my neighbors, I think, just figured out what I do. Um, I I live not far from campus in in a seven flat building, hmm. and uh, we got together for our annual holiday party. And one of them came up to me, and he kind of had this w- bewildered look on his face. And he's like, "Do you understand what happened in the movie Interstellar?" <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> "Yes, that is the kind of physics I do. Like I I understand." exactly what happened in the movie interstellar and in fact uh, there's like this venn diagram for the movie where there's like people who really understand and also uh people who have newborn or relatively young daughters and are extremely susceptible to kind of uh, narrative tension that comes from fear of missing out on their daughter's life uh and i am right in the middle of that venn diagram so <laughs> yeah like three people <laughs> like, that movie was specifically made to wreck me <laughs> Because because I understand exactly how real some of the stuff was, um, it, some of the stuff in it was, it was silly and hyper the wormhole sure. and the going to the black hole. Yeah, that's well, hypothetical. But um, um, but the time dilation and stuff, which like for me that was the most agonizing part, where because of time dilation he loses seven years like that, and there's mm-hmm. his daughter's whole childhood gone. Um, just absolutely. Good. So anyway, my neighbors are like, "Do you understand this movie?" And I end up spending like a half hour at the holiday party trying to explain like okay let's start here's the basics of general relativity and we're gonna like build do, up do you have and, like a pocket uh chalkboard that you bring out and start like, <laughs> professoring on no i there's a lot of hand waving a yeah. lot of gesticulations <laughs> gotcha. um, i mean it's you know if sometimes you gotta grab a piece of paper or a napkin or whatever and start drawing diagrams yeah. but i may do with hand waving yeah yeah right on so um Okay, so that must happen to you a lot, I guess. People sort of either asking what you do and then having a ton of follow-up questions or people figuring out what you do and then having a ton of, of questions related to that. Uh, what is it that you – what's your, like, elevator pitch for what, for what it is that you, that you do and how to get people to understand it without just people – I don't like have a really good elevator glossy. pitch. I, I kind of ramble. Um, <laughs> I, it depends on what people are interested in. You know, I, I spend most of my time, you know, I just talked some about cosmology because it's really interesting to me, but probably most of the papers I've, I've written in recent years um, have to do with, with black holes and, and trying to understand, uh, using black holes as a window to try to understand something called quantum gravity, which is... Oof, we got to get into this, man. I know you don't have much time, but let's do it. We got a, we got a great idea of how, you know, gravity works. General relativity is Einstein's theory of gravity, and it does a great job of describing physics really accurately in a wide variety of situations and then we have you know these these other models for some other kind of basic interactions we see in the universe um electromagnetism and kind of nuclear phenomenon and those are all based on quantum mechanics and they work astonishingly well you know for the problems that they're supposed to you know give us the answer to but every once in a while you you find you have questions where kind of like both should be relevant um, where both quantum mechanics should be relevant, but also general relativity and gravity should be relevant. Situations like cosmology or, um, you know, uh, what happens in really intense gravitational situations like a black hole. And um, in some of those situations, uh, stuff goes haywire, right? Mm-hmm. So we have like these two theories and they're both really good at what they do, but any situation where they both have to kind of like aggressively contribute to an explanation of what's going on, that's things break down and we kind of aren't quite sure why or, or how to proceed. Um, so a lot of people feel like there should be a theory of gravity that is consistent with quantum mechanics, but, you know, in most situations just behaves like Einstein's general relativity. And people have been trying to figure out how this would work since, you know, the 
depending on how you count the 30s or 40s or 50s. Um, and people have had great ideas and all kinds of insights and learned a lot of things about how it doesn't work. But, yeah, we still don't have a complete understanding of how it works. So, um, yeah, you know, this, a lot of the stuff I work on has to do with kind of studying black holes as a way to try to maybe get a little insight into how a theory of quantum gravity might work. Um, okay. So, you know, often like when people ask me what I do, I start gentle, like I'm a physicist, I'm a theoretical <laughs> physicist. And depending on how interested they are, like I kind of give more detail. And, you know, yeah. a lot of times, like if people are interested, then it just kind of turns into questions about black holes. Right. Yeah. Which I'm sure we'll get to. We'll whatever. get to black hole yeah, questions sure. for sure. But first of all, can you just talk about quantum mechanics? What what exactly does that mean? Um, there are a lot of ways. Uh, there are a lot of ways we could approach this. Um, let's think about it this way. Um, so when we got to the 20th century, uh, physicists understood a lot of stuff. Um, but a lot of what they understood was um, kind of confined to the scales that we experience in our everyday life. Like you're a certain size and you interact with things that are, you know, maybe 10 or 100 times bigger than you or 10 or 100 times smaller than you. But mm -hmm. you don't often kind of interact in a meaningful way with things that are, you know, a million times smaller than you or a trillion times smaller than you. Um, so, like, you know, our intuition is is built around our experience moving through the world. And our intuition is kind of built then to handle working with things that are our size or a tenth of our size, or ten times our size, or ten times faster than we can run, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's not so well suited, and you know, in retrospect, you think like, "Oh, of course, maybe it shouldn't be." It's not so well suited to maybe understanding the physics of things that are extremely fast, like approaching the speed of light, or things that are extremely tiny or extremely large, you know, subatomic or cosmological. Mm -hmm. um, so it turns out that when you try to figure out what's going on in those situations, the rules are just different and they don't always, they almost never fit with our intuition about kind of the macroscopic world we're familiar with. Uh, so yeah, quantum mechanics is, uh, is a framework for understanding the physics of kind of very small isolated things like subatomic particles mm -hmm. or you know, like electrons or, um, you know, uh, light, stuff like that. Um, so it was developed in the uh, early part of the 20th century uh, to kind of try to reconcile some things people couldn't explain. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, let's see. Where... Oh, that was good. That was good. Thank you. That's, that's just – I'm just looking for kind of like a basic yeah, the, framework. Uh, the, you know, the quantum mechanics is this really counterintuitive set, ideas, set of ideas about how things behave. Uh, the, the one that you often hear people talk about is the kind of buzzword is you hear like wave-particle duality things like that. Um, you know, in, in quantum mechanics, when you study, you know, these kind of atomic scale objects, what you find is that sometimes they behave in ways that kind of resonates with our idea of what a particle does. Um, and sometimes they behave in ways that kind of fits more with our idea of what a wave should do. Um, and it's not that, you know, they're a particle or a wave or something like that. They just are what they are. And, you know, sometimes we try to force these concepts that we bring from our everyday intuition onto them and Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, so there's kind of a whole different set of rules um, that are, you know, inferred from doing lots of experiments and trying to come up with explanations that, ex you know, tell you what you saw. Mm. And, uh, you know, and then those rules are just the way things work. Um, yeah, so... Uh, how do, how do we get onto quantum mechanics? Where did that come I, from? Quantum kinda, gravity? I, yeah, yeah you, you were talking about quantum gravity and stuff, and I just kind of... I, I yeah, so no in, situations, in situations where things are, like, really small, really fast, really, you know, like in uh, subatomic particles, stuff like that, the, the rules of quantum mechanics kind of tell you what's going on. Got it. Um, okay. Whereas, you know, theory like general relativity, talk about, like, really big, massive objects, really long distances, kind of astronomical, cosmological scales, two very different ends. Right here, here's this, like, little you know, region that you experience in your everyday life. And way down here on the small end is stuff described by quantum mechanics. And way up here on the big end is, you know, the stuff described by, you know, governed by gravitational physics and general relativity. And, you know, every once in a while, there are a few situations where both of those sets of ideas should be important. And yeah. And that's, that's where you that's come the in. stuff. 
That's where a lot of people come in. I'm, <laughs> I'm one of a lot of them. And gotcha. Like you said, the original question was like, where are we now compared to like when I was a kid yep. on some of these questions? And, and the answer is like, in some ways closer and in other ways not closer. Hmm. We still don't have like a totally compelling theory of quantum gravity. Yeah. Now, we know you, a lot of stuff that doesn't work. Gotcha. Do you have, I guess it's two different questions. Do you have either the hope that some sort of broader understanding of or, or answer to these questions is coming. And the second sort of sub question is, do you, is that one of your goals in, as a so professional? I, I do think, I do think slash hope there is a deeper understanding coming. Uh, what's one of the things that's interesting to me is I don't know when to expect it. Um, you know, uh, s- over the last hundred years, um, Our idea of the universe, or kind of a picture of how the world works, has really expanded, and um, you know, physics, what it can do and describe, has grown quickly. And um, you know, a lot of these discoveries happened over the course, you know, of you know, a year, five years, ten years, or something like that. It, it used to be that within like a physicist's career, they could expect to see big problems solved. Um, and, and I don't know that there's any rule that says that, like, you know as we get on to like deeper and harder problems that the pace of discovery should fit comfortably within one scientist's career or even three scientists careers consecutively or whatever. So, you know, I don't know if some of these things that we're working on are just so hard that it's going to be the kind of like long-term collaborative effort that slowly builds up an answer over the course of several consecutive careers. Um, and, you know, we've entered a phase where physicists are kind of like cogs in a machine that's slowly getting towards an answer. Or if someone will just have like a brilliant idea tomorrow and answer it, you know, in one go or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like I hope I hope we'll have answers to some of these questions. It would be neat to see them. Um, I don't do this stuff. I don't pursue these things because I expect to see them. Um, I'm curious about them and like if someone figures this stuff out and you know, especially if I got to contribute to it, but if someone figures this stuff out, that'd be great. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how fast it's supposed to happen. I, I don't think past experience is necessarily a good guide there. Um, I think that's interesting. I mean, I think it, uh, I think there's kind of like a, a sociological aspect to it. Like how does a community who kind of grew up hearing stories of, their mentors and their mentors' mentors kind of solving these fantastic problems on comparatively short timescales deal with the fact that they might be working on problems that take a lot longer. And, you know, maybe they don't get to see the answers to the things they're working on. Do they still pursue them? Um, or do they, you know, how do they deal with that? Yeah. Um, and also, you know, science is, right, science is a, a living thing, and you always have to question what it means to answer questions. And, um you know, the way we've pursued physics for a long time is this idea of reductionism, which you can always break things down into kind of like simpler constituents with simpler rules that, you know, more complicated stuff emerges from. And, you know, a, a lot of scientists, a lot of physicists ask, like, well, how far can you take that? Like, is is that really the route to an ultimate answer? Or are there other scientific ways of answering questions that you have to apply to these? Really, Maybe some problems seem hard because we're demanding the wrong sorts of answers or expecting the wrong sorts of answers. Now, I, I think that's fascinating, especially because um, I've, like I said, I follow you on Twitter. I, I've, I've read uh, something that you wrote on there that was a sort of response to uh, a person asking what the public good is of just, if we're not going to be answering these questions within, say, uh, a scientist's lifetime, why are we pursuing it? What is the public good here? Why should we putting, be putting taxpayer money into that? And uh, you had a, a, a very good answer, I thought. So how do you see that uh, fitting into what you were just talking about there? Yeah. Um, so this is something that's really important to me is like how we as a society um, fund science, mm-hmm. the scientific enterprise and why we do it and how we do it. And I often teach a class here at Loyola on it. Um, which is called Federal Funding of the Sciences, where I just kind of spend a semester with the students looking at historically why we've done it and the mechanisms and how we make decisions and what are the criteria and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think 
that understanding is some, like I said, you know, some fairly esoteric aspect of the behavior of black holes and a toy model for a quantum gravity theory that we think might exist, but we aren't sure is going to necessarily improve the quality of your cell phone or <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, but you kind of never know what's going to be important. Um, this, is, this is the question of like, what kind of science do you fund? Do you fund basic science, like the real curiosity driven stuff? Or, or do you only fund stuff that you think like this is definitely going to have a particular kind of payoff and, and I can expect it in five years or 10 years or something like that. Right. You know, I, I think a healthy society funds both kinds. Um, it's, it's good to have like targets and ambitions and say like, you know, we definitely need to make progress on this particular kind of thing and we need to do it on this time scale. Um, but the, the real innovative things tend to come from curiosity driven research. Um, the surprising things like the, huh, where'd that come from kind of moments in science. Um, you know, like I was saying, before, you know, ideas like quantum mechanics and relativity began to develop at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, around 1905. Um, and, and before that, you know, people thought they had a pretty good fix on a lot of physics. They knew that there were holes in their understanding, um, but, you know, they didn't necessarily imagine that the way to close those holes would be to kind of uh, really radically revise a lot of their assumptions about the universe. But people pursued curiosity-driven research, and they kind of uncovered these these very deep and unexpected um, ideas about the universe. And and it, it was kind of understanding that stuff that led people to ask other questions or pursue other kinds of research or say, like, oh, well, if this thing works that way, I wonder what I could do with that. And then somewhere down the road, you get, like, transistors or something like that. Mm. And it wasn't because, you know, in 1899 or whatever, someone said, like, I've got to figure out a better way to make a circuit or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just this chain of, of kind of curiosity-driven investigations that kind of revealed new ideas, and those ideas prompted new kinds of questions. And, you know, the, the kinds of questions that eventually lead to, yeah, I don't know, like a, some incredible new drug or something like that might not even be apparent, you know, before. Right. Um, it's just this kind of series of unexpected developments that leads you to explore new ideas and ask new kinds of questions that somewhere down the road leads to something that we find incredibly useful or something like that. Mm. I mean, the, everything, pretty much everything that we interact with in our day-to-day -day lives came about that way. You follow it back far enough and it's connected somehow to some kind of curiosity-driven basic research that, you know, if you'd counted on people to fund it because it was going to make a profit on a particular timetable never would have happened. Right. I dig it. I like it. Now, I'm fascinated. How does your work and all of these questions that you grapple with in your in your uh, professional life, how does that inform or impact your worldview uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, if it does at all? How does it inform my worldview on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I guess I guess uh, in a less lofty way of asking that, are you walking around sometimes thinking like, well, none of this matters. The universe is so huge and it's expanding and there are galaxies, <laughs> you know, and it's, I wonder, right. you know, how does it That's, impact you? Yeah. Um, like no matter what good news I hear, I'm just kind of like Eeyore. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. well, that's great, we're spiraling towards the heat death of the universe. So. <laughs> right, yeah. Or you could, you know, or you could be Happy Tigger. Happy birthday, and just be, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, be, be enthralled by it and just and excited. So I'm, I'm wondering, it might be in between there, but uh, if it does impact your worldview, how does it do that? Um, uh, you know, I, that's a good question, and I don't know the answer to it. Um, so... The, the topic we were just talking about, which is kind of how we fund science in, in this country and, and the role science plays in this country, that's really important to my worldview. That's one of the reasons why I teach this class here, because I want people who are going to go out and be professionals in a lot of different fields to understand how important that is. Um, so I, I teach this, this class in this honor, in the honors program here at Loyola. Um, it's really cool because I have students who, you know, are going on to law school or they're going to be doctors or, or whatever. And, uh, and I feel like they leave with a much better appreciation of why it's important that we do these things. And I feel like I can count on them, you know, or at least a lot of them to, to be advocates for that stuff as citizens. Um, so, you know, the, 
as someone who teaches physics and spends a lot of time thinking about physics and reading about physics, and over the last few years trying to develop more of a kind of big picture idea of the evolution of physics in particular, but science more generally, like 20th century science, like historically, how did things develop? What were the important things? Um, it's really important to me that that kind of I help students value that stuff. Um, that whether it's in a class like that honors class I was telling you about, or just like a physics class, that my physics students kind of leave understanding that one, you know, uh, the the ways that they're learning of thinking about the world kind of go beyond just the classroom. Um, or just, you know, beyond what they might do professionally or technically, especially if they go into the sciences, that also this kind of way of scrutinizing things and thinking about the world should kind of inform decisions they make as citizens. Um, but but also that they just, student, my students in general, kind of appreciate how important science is um, to, to their everyday lives mm -hmm. and why it's important that we as a society kind of fund it and provide for it and make it an important part of who we are yeah all right so i'm I'm also interested in the intersection i guess this is a jesuit school mm -hmm. yeah do you get any pushback with any sort of no. maybe creationist uh... oh gosh no <laughs> okay no not at all um so yeah you know i'm i'm not catholic i i didn't really grow up going to church um same. And it was made pretty clear to me when I came here to visit for my interview. They're like, oh, we don't expect that of you. Like, you know, a lot of us here are, um, you know, Catholic, but a lot of us aren't. And, you know, we just want people here who, you know, can teach our students well and explore ideas. And, um, but, you know, actually, some of the ideas we've talked about, um, like early universe cosmology, uh, the, the Big Bang, the idea of a Big Bang was proposed by George Lemaitre, who was a Jesuit. Um, the Jesuits have a, a long history of, of uh, exploring, exploring ideas that, like you might think it, at first blush, were like, oh, that might be controversial for someone religious to look into. Like, is it weird that you would explore the you know, origin of the universe and ask these questions when you, are you supposed to think that you know, God created the universe? Um, so yeah, the Jesuits, you know, I think have a, a long history of of exploring things scientifically without feeling like that somehow interferes with their spiritual life. Um, so I, I've never felt that here, um, not a bit. And you know, in, in my in my science funding class, like I've explored some really controversial topics with the students, um, and and even when they have strong opinions, they're like really eager to explore them. Like, uh, you know, we we do a series of debates in the class where there are two topics, like two areas, two areas of scientific research. And we have to have a debate. It's kind of a hypothetical. Like if you had to fund one, if you had to pick one, let's argue about which one. Um, and so, you know, they might one of the things they might be arguing for and, and the, the premise is that they have to prepare both sides. They, they don't know until they get to class which side they have to argue for. Hmm. So you have to be ready, you know, not just to stick up for the one that you think it's good, but you have to be prepared to argue the merits of the other. And like, hopefully if you think through it and you really examine both, then understanding the merits of one kind of improves your own arguments for whatever you think is more important. Um, so yeah, one of the things that we, you know, uh, one of the topics that comes up is stem cell research. Um, and, and, you know, students, some students have really strong feelings about that. Um, but for the most part, they want to explore it anyway. Like, they like the idea of like, okay, this is something that like I might be opposed to for whatever reason, but I think it's like a really healthy exercise to have to argue for it and see if like my own opinions can stand up to me, like honestly trying to make a case for it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, no, we, we explore some uh, relatively controversial science at times in that class, but no, I've never had any kind of pushback nothing but nothing but encouragement to explore stuff and get kids thinking right critically on. about stuff cool so i'm um, that sort of leads me into um and I, I promise i'm not painting you into a corner i also did not grow up going to church uh, i'm not like this isn't a trap or anything but i'm fascinated by the sort of um genesis <laughs> genesis it's a loaded term but um have you heard the idea of uh 
scientists saying something to the effect of like i can explain everything as long as you spot me this one miracle like where everything came from i can explain everything from the time of the big bang on you know we've got everything but where all of that stuff came from couldn't tell you uh i don't have a follow-up question necessarily except for have you heard that and like what are you, what are your thoughts on that yeah no i i have a so you know i have a lot of friends who are scientists and who feel like yeah you know they're we pretty much understand with a you know few minor caveats all the physical laws that govern pretty much every aspect of experience that we might encounter and that's a complete description and you know there that's my description of the natural world and and that's it and that's complete um Like you said, there's always going to be probably a question you can formulate that might fall outside those bounds. Like you said, if you spot me one thing, mm-hmm. like you know, people have a lot of ideas about. Yeah, you know, there there are different notions of of a Big Bang, for instance, right? There's pre- something pretty much everyone agrees on, which is the hot Big Bang, which is that if you just go back far enough in time, you run the film of the universe backwards, you get to a stage where everything is very dense and hot and energetic and you take that far enough and you're like, okay, you know, the conditions are so extreme that the physics that we understand can't reliably extrapolate past this point. And so I guess let's call this the beginning because it's the beginning of what we understand. And maybe if we learn more, we can push it back further, but clearly like this starting from this point and letting the physics we understand move forward gives us a pretty compelling description of the universe. Um, that's the hot big bang and it's there in the data. Pretty much everyone agrees. Um, but, you know, other people want to go, go beyond that, right? And it becomes speculative because, like I said, that you only go back as far as the physics that pretty much everyone agrees on. Um, and so you speculate and you say, well, what if things were this way? Or what if we adopted this framework for quantum gravity or whatever? What could we say about the universe before that point? Um, and, like, it's fun and interesting. And, you know, hopefully, like, you know, if you have some neat idea, you can say, oh, I didn't think of this, but if this were the case, and we went by that point, maybe we would see this in the universe today, and maybe we go look for that, and maybe that's a way of learning something about the universe. Um, but you know, th- that that's speculative, and everyone agrees that it is. So you kind of get to that point that you mentioned, where like if you spot me this one thing, like like we don't know beyond a certain point, you know, exactly. Um, but that's I guess you know, not knowing is not the same thing as as not believing. Or not feeling like there's like a you know still something in that same framework like there's a framework that explains all the same way that explains natural phenomenon. So you know I have friends who are scientists who you know agree like yeah we can go back this far and I don't know what's beyond that but I you know it's it's my opinion that there is a natural world and a set of physical laws that explain it and I might not know them completely yet. There might be that thing that like yeah you have to spot me that one thing because I don't know how to explain it to you yet. But I think that there is an explanation for it. Um, and I've, you know, I have friends who are physicists who say, yeah, you know, I can go back that far and I just genuinely don't know past that point. Mm. I personally, I, I don't know. Yeah. So this is, this kind of connects with what you were saying before, you know, it's like a Jesuit school and like, yes, I didn't grow up going to church. You know, I'm not like an especially religious person, but you know, I, I don't, I don't personally have an answer for whether or not what I can tell you about with physics is enough. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I, I've always, the idea of non-overlapping magisteria has always appealed to me, the idea that there are certain things that science can do for you and there are certain things that science can't do for you. And, uh, yeah, I can't give you a, a well-defined notion of kind of what those domains are, Um you know, but it, it's always appealed to me that there are questions that science is really suited for. And um, there are questions that it might not be suited for. I think the interesting thing is kind of figuring out how far you can push it. Like, you know, how are, are there questions that some people might think science is not especially well suited for that, like, we can really scrutinize and show that, like, actually, yeah, this is the domain of science. Um but even if you push me, I, I probably couldn't tell you exactly where that line is. Gotcha. Yeah. So, uh, thank you for, for that. I kind of, 
kind of push you a, a little bit there to uh, delve into your into yourself. So I'm going to do that a little further. Um, why why black holes? For you personally, you know, maybe your professional uh, work has sort of steered you in this direction. But for you, what is it about you that they they really fascinate you? Um, you know, I'm interested because because they're the laboratories we have for certain ideas. Um, you know, I'm I'm interested, like I said, in quantum gravity situations where um, both quantum mechanics and gravitational physics should be relevant. And that that's not the kind of thing that we can test in a lab or even a particle accelerator. So the laboratories you have, if you call them that, are astrophysical or cosmological. You have to ask yourself in this theory, what would happen in this really extreme astrophysical situation? Um, you know, do you expect a black hole to look like this or, you know, or to have this property? Um, cosmologically, like, do I think that the universe should show this kind of, you know, pattern in the leftover radiation or do I think it should look like something else uh, the radiation left over from the Big Bang um, the the questions I'm interested in just oh, we don't have the capacity to to build laboratories to analyze them the way we would other things here on Earth um, so yeah black holes are an environment where the physics is extreme enough that these questions that I'm interested in come into play um, you know, for a lot of black holes, especially big black holes, um, there are a lot of things about gravity and quantum mechanics that you can that you can reconcile. Um, you know, kind of for really big black holes, and um, there are regions where the gravity isn't too strong, and you know, you don't run into these deep conflicts with quantum mechanics, and you expect they they both they both apply and you can say all kinds of interesting things about these objects. This is, this is work done like in the 1970s by Stephen Hawking and people. Um, but also, like I was saying before, it's kind of a, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a golden age of cosmology. There are all these experiments that, uh, that, you know, that, that have been done over the last 20 years that maybe 40 or 50 years ago were hard to imagine, but the same thing can be said for gravitational physics. I think if I was in grad school today, um, when I was in grad school 20 years ago, um, it felt like the questions I was interested in were answered or addressed by a certain approach, which was theoretical physics. And I feel like some of those questions now, it's realistic to address them experimentally. Um, over the last couple of years, we've seen this uh, work with uh, by the LIGO collaboration, observing gravitational waves, which are a prediction of general relativity. Um, and, and that's something that's been, you know, people have been working on or, or trying to, you know, uh, you know push this, this idea of, like, actually doing these experiments for, like, 50 years. But even when I was in grad school, like, when I would talk to people about that stuff, you know, professors would kind of, like, shake their head and say, like, well, if I can get it to work, that'd be great. But, um, I, you know, I felt like it, it wasn't treated like a, a serious like it was, it was a very risky proposition. Um, but like now they're doing this incredible stuff. So if I, if I was like in grad school today, I, I feel like I might be pursuing some of that stuff. Um, the, the questions that I'm interested in might lead me to do kind of this experimental stuff like LIGO, study gravitational waves or um, kind of cosmology experimental work. Gotcha. Is there an overarching goal to your uh to your study of of black holes is you know do you have a question that you're that you're really driving toward um there are there's a lot of questions um you know ultimately like i was saying before um there's this question of like is there a sensible way of fitting gravitational physics which we currently understand through general relativity and quantum mechanics kind of together in one framework that makes sense of our particular universe that we live in. Um, people have had a lot of ideas about how to combine quantum mechanics and gravity. They just never end up quite looking like the kind of universe we live in. Um, so I guess if, if there's an overarching question is like, is there, is there such a thing? Is there a theory of quantum gravity? Is that the right thing to look for? And, and if so, what is the one that looks like our universe? Um, and then within that, um, you know, there are kind of more detailed questions. Like, if there is such a thing, what are the fundamental principles? Like, what are the important essential ideas that kind of 
will help us understand how to build something like that up. Um, so, you know, if you, if you look at my papers, um, uh, you know, I, to someone in the field, I don't know, they might look kind of scattershot um, because I tend to just pick up on things that I think are interesting that relate to some of those questions um, and work on them and try different approaches. Um, there are a lot of people working on this stuff, trying lots of different things and kind of no one's sure exactly what's going to work. Hmm. What is spooky action at a distance? It's a phrase used by Einstein. Um, to describe the result of something called entanglement. Um, so in the, let's see, I guess 1920s, as people were really beginning to flesh out quantum mechanics, um, this, this framework that's supposed to help you understand the physics of, you know, truly microscopic objects, kind of atomic, subatomic scale, um, people were coming up with a lot of counterintuitive results um things they didn't expect or things that kind of like didn't fit with their you know everyday intuition um so one of these ideas is that things that we might normally think of as a particle um often did wavy things uh, exhibited phenomena that we associate with waves like interference um, you know, if you shine light through two slits, monochromatic light, which means all one color, one wavelength, um, you know, you kind of get this pattern on the other side where the light interferes. And sometimes you get bright spots, sometimes you get dark spots. And it's just like this essentially wavy phenomenon that at the beginning of the 19th century convinced most physicists that light was a wave. Um, and you often see things that you might normally think of as particles exhibit kind of wavy phenomena like that, like interference or diffraction. It seems weird from like a everyday experience. Like you don't think of like a, this box of Kleenex on my desk that no one hearing this can see. <laughs> they can imagine. Well, like do it's some got like, butterflies on it. Do some weird wavy thing. Um, but when you you know when you look at really small things like electrons and stuff, and you find that yeah they sometimes do behave like waves, so people needed a, a, a way to describe this wavy aspect of them, and this is provided by a physicist named Erwin Schrödinger who um, describes something called of the famous cat of the famous cat. Yes, yeah. um, I should say of cat fame. Of cat fame. Yes. Um, said okay, well there's this mathematical object called the wave function that will kind of help us explain this wavy phenomenon that we normally associate with, with particles. Um, and so uh, a wave function is a way of describing kind of the state that a quantum system is in. A system governed by the rules of quantum mechanics. It could be something as simple as a single particle or, for the example, we're going to talk about two particles. Um, so uh, the, the rules of quantum mechanics tell you that the wave function for the system get contributions from kind of all the different states that are consistent with what you know about the system. So if all you know is that there's two particles in your system, you get like a little machine that sh shoots out two particles. So, okay, you got these two particles. And maybe they have some other property, like one is red and the other is blue. Um, and you built your machine so that if one is red, the other has to be blue and vice versa. In, in quantum mechanics, at least one interpretation of quantum mechanics called the Copenhagen interpretation, which is kind of the, the kind of, orthodox kind of most widely subscribed to way of understanding quantum mechanics um neither particle is red or blue until you check until you do a measurement mm. so you make a little machine and it spits out these two particles and they've got this quantum mechanical property that we'll call red or blue and as as far as you can tell until you check the system has to be simultaneously in a state of the first one red and the second one blue and the first one blue and the second one red until it's observed. Until it's observed, right? So we say that the two particles are entangled because I built the machine in such a way that if one ends up being one way, the other has to be the other. Um, so then you go and do a measurement, and suppose you look at, we'll call them particle one and particle two. You look at particle one and it's red. All right, particle two has to be blue. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it like violated the rules that my machine was based on. Or you look at particle one and it's blue, and that means that particle two has to be red. Right. Um, but in the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, there, there's kind of no reality to that until you make the measurement. But that's weird because um, 
it doesn't have to be something like a red particle and a blue particle. Instead, it could be some physical property that, you know, there's a law of physics that tells you it has to be, you know, obeyed. You know, if this particle has this property, then the other one has to have the other one. Otherwise, you know, a violation of some important law of physics. Um, so now, like, imagine we make our little machine and we spit the particles out. And one of them goes really far in one direction and the other goes really far in the other, right? So the Copenhagen interpretation says as soon as you check particle one, the other particle instantly kind of assumes whatever property it's supposed to have. It's called collapse of the wave function. And it doesn't matter how far apart they are. It has to happen instantaneously. So you and I could like set up this experiment where we sync our watches and agree that we'll measure our particles as they arrive on a certain schedule. And if I measure mine and it's red, yours instantaneously becomes blue. You can measure it a split second later, and if mine was red, you'll see blue. Even if we're so far apart that light couldn't have traveled from me to you, if there's no way to communicate that. Um, and this really worried Einstein. He didn't like the idea of things, uh, of, of some you know, uh, cause and effect somehow happening instantaneously. Right? In physics, things always propagate. They take some time. There's some speed associated with you make a change here and some wiggles move out at some speed and then something happens over here. Um, anyone listening to this is not going to see my demonstrative hand gestures. Get the wiggles. We get them. I'm just pointing to here and there and doing <laughs> yeah. some wiggles. Um, yeah, so uh, anyway, in the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, this collapse of the wave function happens instantaneously and it was very troubling to Einstein. Um, who kind of suggested this thought experiment I'm describing to you, was, along with uh, two other physicists, Podolsky and Rosen, as a way of illustrating how ridiculous that would be. Like, isn't that ridiculous that you could shoot this particle really far that way and this particle really far that way, and yet the measurements you do would have to correlate, you know, or anti-correlate, exactly. Um, but it's what happens, as far as we can as far as we can tell. So spooky action at a distance is the name Einstein gave to this effect, hmm. because... It was an action that happened at any arbitrary great distance, and he thought it was very spooky that <laughs> right. that happens. Well, it's a good it's, turn of phrase. It spooked him. And it's part of your Twitter bio. That's why I asked you. Yeah. Um, okay, I know you're, we're running out of time here. So one last sort of big uh, question. Is there anything about the way the world works, the way the universe works, that is a bi- that's like a big mystery to you? That just That's just something that gets you going that's like that is amazing i don't know how that works and that's a it's it's unexplainable and it and it, and it excites you um I, I am in general excited by anything interesting that i don't understand even if it is understandable uh there there are certainly things that i'm interested in that i don't know if they're understandable or not like like i said um it, it's not clear whether this kind of process of reductionism that has kind of guided science for a long time is going to eventually provide us with the kind of answer, you know, we're, we're looking for for this question of, like, how do you reconcile quantum mechanics and gravity in certain situations? Um, so I'm excited by that. Yeah. Like, you know how far can you push this procedure like is is it reductionism all the way down um you know this this really challenging question that people have kind of thrown themselves against for 70 years or 80 years um is it is it hard in the traditional sense or is it hard in a sense that we don't appreciate um that is does it require kind of a, a different uh, kind of scientific answer than the one we're used to. Um, so that is exciting and uh, kind of enticing to me. Um, but yeah, just as a rule of thumb, pretty much kind of any interesting physics-related thing that I don't understand yet gets me going. Um, I've been teaching. I've been teaching this class this semester. It, it's another one of these honors classes. Um, so for a long time, I've been teaching this federal funding of the sciences class. And this year I wanted to do something different. So I said, okay, I want to take a bunch of honors students who aren't physics majors and do like a 20th century physics class for them. Um, because everyone has to take intro physics. You take physics one and physics two and pretty much everything you learn in there was done by like 1870. Hmm. It's all, you know, it's, it's relevant. It's like 
extremely important for mm-hmm. you know if they're going to go in and be doctors and stuff it's like important stuff it's and it's also like a, a good way to teach people how to think about the world um but it's also not like the exciting 20th century stuff yeah um so anyway i decided i was going to teach this class where i would take these honor students and just do like an honest to gosh 20th century physics um class like really make them learn about special relativity and quantum mechanics and not in the kind of physics for poets sense even though i think that's a really good thing to do too but like i wanted it to be a little technical and like make them do calculations and appreciate this stuff um and and teaching that class and kind of even approaching you know older established material for a new audience um and thinking about like how in the world am i going to explain this to them um has been like really invigorating and exciting yeah um so, I mean, yeah, the, to answer your original question, like there there are physics questions that are really exciting to me that, you know, make me want to keep thinking about this stuff. Um, but there are also like questions about like, well, okay, how do you explain this stuff to people that are equally exciting to me? You see, I waste a lot of time on Twitter <laughs> writing <laughs> writing long threads about like someone's contribution or something like that. Yeah, uh, I learn a lot. But also like I think it's interesting to you know, like tell these stories and, relate them to people and think about like how would you explain this to somebody Hmm. right on well uh two very last things one is what uh if there is there a book that you would recommend like lay people to get into physics and then a follow-up is how can people uh find you and connect with you um a book for lay people to get into physics. just you know like if it depends what kind of it's a you know physics is a really really big field so it depends what you want to get into. How about the stuff that you're into? If, um, if people hear you, you today and say, man, I want to know more about that, where do I start? You know, I can tell you. So first of all, um, I, I keep going back to this phrase, golden age, right? Golden age of experimental cosmology and gravitational physics. Um, it's, a, it's a really great time for popular science writing. There are a lot of people out there just doing incredible stuff. Um, I would recommend, you know, recent stuff. Um, any of... Um, the books by, by Sean Carroll, um, who has written a number of books on um, fun subjects like cosmology and the arrow of time and quantum mechanics over the last few years. Um, let's see. What else would I recommend? Um, He's looking at his bookshelves right now. Folks. I'm looking at my bookshelf, but um, a lot of more recent things I've lent out to people. Um, I have this bad habit of lending books to people and forgetting who I lent them to. Oh, it's the worst, and they don't come back. And then they don't come back. <laughs> um, let me come back to that in a minute and see if I can remember any. But sure. if I was going to recommend um, books that are a little older but that I thought were kind of stand the test of time and um, and really challenged me when I was younger and read them and that I think are accessible, um, there's one by Steven Weinberg called The First Three Minutes, which is about the early universe. It's a book about cosmology. Um, and that I think is like a, a beautiful, accessible book that, you know, is, is challenging and, uh, but still self-contained. Um, I just had a few students read it and they were really excited by it and really raved. Um, what else? You've got a book called Black Holes and Time Warps, which I think it, like if I were a set designer, uh, you know, trying to come up with the, a, a book title of something that should be on a physicist's shelf. I feel like I would do that. And it, somebody would be like, Oh, come on. There's no book called black holes in time. There Warps. is. And it's by Kip Thorne, who is the Caltech relativist, who is the consultant on interstellar. Really? Ah, um, it's yeah. all come full circle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, a lot of my colleagues in California, um, consult on movies and TV shows yeah. and stuff. Um, but this is a little different. So, you know, Kip Thorne is, he just won the Nobel Prize mm. um, for his work on gravitational wave detection. Not his work on Interstellar. The LIGO project. Yeah. Not not his work on Interstellar. Yeah. Um, but he was also a consultant on the movie and made sure that where possible, the physics was correct. Um, and they did a lot of interesting stuff on that film because they wanted to render the black hole as realistically as possible. And so he worked with the visual effects studio and some of the students and they wrote like ray tracing engines that really worked according to relativity. And so the images they produced of the black hole and interstellar are with some modifications to kind of make it, uh, to make it look right, uh, to make it uh, kind of work visually in the context of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, 
kind of showing optical phenomenon around black holes that hadn't really been explored before. Um, so it's funny because you know, in my field, people post their papers online. You publish in journals and you do peer review, but every night you go to this website and see what are the new papers that people have submitted today and follow along with what people are doing. It's a website called archive.org, um, A-R-X-I-V, mm. not the other archive.org, gotcha. which is a different website. Um, but yeah, so anyway... Um, uh, he posted a few papers on there where it's the author list is like him and then people from whatever vi- visual effects studio um, worked cool. with because, you know, they did all this work writing the ray tracing engine and making the images and they published the results. Um, this kind of neat merging of academia and Hollywood. Right on. Well, uh, how good, can people... Good luck editing that. That's cool. How can people uh, get a hold of you and find your work and find you? Um, I'm almost always in hiding. No one can find me. Um <laughs> Yeah, like no, um, Salinger. yeah, you know, I'm I'm on the web all over. You know, I'm on Twitter, but also I'm on Loyola's website. If you go to the physics department, there I am, and there's an email address. So yeah, I, you know, I try to I try to make myself accessible to the extent that I can. I try to answer questions and stuff like that. Um, I tend not to have a lot of time to review people's pet theories yeah. about <laughs> the universe. Um, I get a lot of that. Like, could you review my personal theory? No, I cannot. Myself and like you know, <laughs> no. I, I mean, the time I have is pretty limited. But yeah. um, but also you know, um, things like you know, kids who are interested or have questions or stuff like that. You know, I try where I can to make time for. Cool. And what's your um, Twitter handle, just so people can find you? There? Just it's just McNeese. I got on early enough. Ah, at McNeese. M C N E E S. Yeah. Right on. Cool. Well, I feel good. You feel good? Yeah. Anything yeah. else that you want to talk about? That was uh, no. I felt like I had a, a dip there in the middle where I got kind of tired. Oh, yeah. End of the day. Couldn't sleepiness. tell. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I feel like I'm out of it now. Right on. Well, thank you yeah. very much for talking with me. It was nice meeting you. Nice meeting you, too.